Welcome to Progress Not Perfection, the leadership podcast where we grow through what we go through. My name is JQ and I'll be your co-pilot. Each episode, we sit down with leaders to explore how they build companies and communities, products and services with a vision for the greater good. We dig into how they create clarity and chaos as they wrestle with messy situations and also how they navigate their own career journeys along the way. If you're ready, let's step to it. You know how sometimes you have those all-star friends? The ones that inspire you to think differently. The ones that call you out on your excuses. Sometimes they're also the ones that have been around forever. In this case, Bob and I have been friends since 2007. Ahoy, Krasko Bob. Yak samash. Yak samash. Ahoy. This is Bob Wang. Do you know what I said? You, you said, uh, hi, and how are you in Czech? Yep. Um, I said, hello, beautiful Bob. Oh. <laughs> yeah, listeners be impressed. I am speaking in Czech. 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 <laughs> um, Czeski. Oh, Czeski. Yes. Yeah. Why does Bob know Czeski? Well, he grew up there. But before we get into all of that, who exactly is Bob Wang? Well, professionally, Bob quit his job at KPMG to launch his own company, Legacy Advantage. It's a cloud-based bookkeeping company. He made a successful exit, selling Legacy for $1.8 million to Deloitte. And now he's at Traction Guest as their VP Finance. In 2019, Bob was recognized as top 40 under 40 CPA practice advisor, top 10 most influential bookkeeper. You wouldn't think that he's got any spare time given those accomplishments, but on the personal side, he's a rock climber, a bookworm, a family man. He has one amazing wife, two beautiful daughters, and one gorgeous dog, Dawson. Over the next hour, we cover everything from marriage to mission, from his startup to starting a family, and more. Here we go. Not many people know this, but at the age of four, Bob moved from China to the Czech Republic, where he lived for seven years. I couldn't help but wonder, did his childhood in the Czech Republic have anything to do with his journey as an entrepreneur? Instead of going to playground as a kid, I actually uh, played in the warehouses. You know, instead of jumping on in, in sandboxes, I jumped into like boxes of clothing, right? Because that's where my parents were and that's where I hung out. And through that whole journey, I just saw the, the hard work and the reward that entrepreneurship could bring mm. and the generational changing ability that starting a business can, can do for, for us. You know, my parents came from nothing and, you know, my grandparents made tofu for a living in China. So to go from that to where we are now, to have the funds and ability to not only immigrate in Canada, but live here, invest and you know it's it's a really great legacy that they have started for us you know for me i just really want to stand on their shoulders and, and keep keep driving forward stand on their shoulders keep driving forward it seemed like bob's parents and grandparents played a huge role in planting two important roots legacy and family bob's family immigrates to canada and we're gonna fast forward a bit here but trust me we'll get to legacy here's bob on marriage and mission so you grew up in BC and head into university. That's actually where we met. Yeah, that's right. Do you remember uh, what that was like? How we met or you BC? Yeah, how we both. Uh, no, how we met. How we met? <sighs> I think it was something really random, but... Uh, it was at one of your events. Um, so you were... BizCom. Yep, you were the president of BizCom. Okay. Time, and I was uh, competing in Speak Out. Mm. 
And that was actually like our first interaction. Public speaking competition. The reason I bring up UBC is because uh, my first friend at UBC is your wife. Oh, really? Um, yeah, so Anne... Oh, psych class, um, was it? I, oh, gosh, she's going to kill me if I missed this. <laughs> I want to say theater. The, theater, oh, yeah, yeah, it's probably theater. It was like yeah, theater yeah, yeah, 100 yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, that's how we met. So the reason I wanted to bring up Anne is because most of our friends, uh, we're all getting married around now, late, late 20s, early 30s. But you two, you've been married for eight years. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, what was it like marrying so early? How did you know? Yeah, lots of layers to appeal there. So first of all, it's very against Asian culture to marry early because I think Asian culture is like, you know, get a job, get established, and then marry. So around the late 20s, early 30s mark. And Anne actually proposed another way of thought. She said, instead of us going on our own journey and then bringing it together 10 years later, why don't we start together if, we're not, if we know we're going to be together anyway? Why don't we start together with nothing and build it together? Mm. And I thought that was a really cool and radical idea. And that made a lot of sense to me because when you go into marriage later in life, you have the sense of, oh, this is mine, that's yours. This is my career, that's your career. This is my house, my car, that's your house, your car. Mm -hmm. And then it's really hard. It's harder as people age. It's harder for people to join and really merge as one. Whereas we felt that, you know, we were young, we were malleable, uh, we had nothing. And everything we have together today is a result of uh, mutual partnership. Mm. So I really like that perspective. That's one. And the other one is, uh, you know, speaking with pastors at, at our church, getting counseling. Our pastor's perspective was that, you know, it's really important to be married for a few years before having kids mm. so that you know how to be with one another yeah. on your own, yeah. right? A lot of marriages, uh, a, lot, a lot of couples get together, get married, and next year they have a baby, and they have basically someone else in their house for the next 15 years, right. 20 years. Right. When the kids move out of the house, the parents don't know how to be with one another because they've never been with one another, you know, as married, right. as married. Without the kids. You, without the kids, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas right now, I'm looking forward to them leaving, my kids leaving <laughs> already because I just had such a great time with just me and Anne, yeah. you know? Yeah. And I'm looking forward to that as mm. opposed to being anxious about what's to come. So yeah, we had about five, six years, I think five years of marriage prior to starting our family. Mm -hmm. And that was such a great, magical time. I, I love the fact that you bring up the mutual partnership thing. And I feel like one of the, the main reasons people hold off on getting married until their late 20s is because there's this sense of building identity, right? Like figuring out who you are and then being like, okay, I'm ready now. Um, how have you built that into your relationship in terms of you as individuals as well as your being a couple? Yeah, I think it's a really healthy progression to go from dependence to independent and then to becoming interdependent. I think Anne and I have had uh, different journeys in that growth. I've had a pretty life-changing uh, failure slash experience in the third year of university that really allowed me to really understand who I am, what I want to be, and what I want to accomplish. So I would say I, I gained independence, at least from a mental perspective, by the time I finished university. So definitely not financial independence, but but that identity independence. Of who you are. Yeah, yeah who, who I am, who I want to be. Everyone's journey is different, but I think, uh, you know, I was ready to be married and, and she was ready to be married. Mm -hmm. and, you know, we just went ahead and did it. Marriage it's, at some level is a choice. So you get, like, you never know for sure. There's, it's always a risk. Mm -hmm. And in fact, even after you get married, marriage is just a start. It's not the end, yeah. right? Even after you get married, especially after you get married, you got to work on it every day. You got to choose to be married every single day. Yeah. 
and I guess at some point you have to just say, I want to choose to be married to this person. Mm-hmm. Therefore, you're married. It's not. Right. I'm in love. I can't make a decision. It's like, not romantic. It's, it's not, you know, ma- marriage is not. Yeah. I mean, marriage can be. It, it is romantic, but right. but it's not just pure emotional love. There's a right. there's a the intellectual choice to that as well. Mm. Yeah, they say that um, you don't ever make right choices. You make a decision, then you make it right. Mm. Right. So yeah. you, you kind of pivot as you go. Yeah. I would be remiss to just totally skip over that big failure that you oh, mentioned yeah. <laughs> uh, in third year university. What what was that? Yeah, that was very much life altering. I went into university not being a super high achiever, mm-hmm. but in the first or second year of university, I really I met a lot of amazing peers who were just doing really great things already in the first second year of of UBC, and I for some reason equated busyness to success. And that's not true, as as we now mm-hmm. all know. Mm-hmm. And so, at the same time, I think in third year of university, I took on you know full course load, plus I led BizCom, plus I started a new club, and doing all of those made me mediocre in every respect. In fact, I dropped the ball on quite a few responsibilities, and that really made me question why I was doing all those things and what makes me happy. Mm. And so I, you know, I went online, like, how do you find your purpose, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and actually really, it was really helpful because a list of 10 questions forced me to think about what I want my life to look like. So the list of questions, I don't remember all of them, but things like, you know, what do you think you're good at? What do you think others say you're good at? What brings in the most joy in life? What's important to you? Not enough of us ask that question of ourselves, especially university students when we're so inf- influenced by, inf- yeah, so easily influenced by, yeah. by others, right? Mm-hmm. Answering those questions gave me the sense of grounding and allowed me to define how I want to live my life and where I want to go. So ultimately, I came up with a vision statement for my life, you know, to be a godly man who loves his family and help others achieve success. God, family, and career, and career in a position where I'm always supporting others and elevating others to mm-hmm. help them achieve their potential. And that mission statement has informed every decision I've made along the way, including, you know, getting to KPMG, starting my own business, selling to Deloitte. Even now, every step along the way, it's all about impact and how I can move forward and toward that lifelong mission. I resonated with Bob as he shared his mission statement. But if we don't have a mission statement yet, it's hard to wrap your head around how you would base all of your decisions off of one sentence. It was easy for him to say, now that he's done it and has held onto it for so long. But I wanted to know more. What was that process of building the mission statement like? And why was it so important? I really want to reiterate that it's super important for every one of us to have a mission statement. You know, I I sometimes tell some of my mentees, like every company in business is out there to achieve something and all of them have a vision statement. And the vision statement that they have is, is a description of how the world is going to be with them in it. You know, if a companies have it, I think it's even more important that individuals have it mm-hmm. to make the highest impact in the world. One of my mentors, he, he challenged me. And the question that, that he asked me is, what do you want your tombstone to say? The other way to, to ask that question is, you know, when you're 90, 100 years old and you're dying on the, in your deathbed, how do you want to have lived your life? What mm. kind of impact it, what do you want to have? So, you know, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits. Start with the end in start, mind. Start with the end in mind. The end that I want to have in mind is that I want to be known someone that has added a ton of value to others 
I want to be an example to others. Yeah. Um, I want to be an example to my kids. I wanted to elevate them, break through barriers, help others achieve their potential. That's someone that I want to be known for. Love that. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. So you build this mission statement and you make this decision about your careers. You, um, you end up at KPMG. What were those first few years like for you in terms of what you picked up? Was it mostly just competence within uh, the profession or, or you know, was, were there clear things that you started to learn that, that then pushed you forward after that? Yeah, so at KPMG, I specifically chose to go into the enterprise group uh, and mainly because of my mission statement. You know, I want to be a, a servant leader, business professional that serves small business. Mm. And that was the best place for me to get that information. Competence for sure, uh, technical ability for sure, the ability to solve problems, uh, to understand, you know, what an audit is, you know, what account, what the accounting world is. Like I, I learned a ton of that. Right. But I also realized that I am not a super great worker slash employee if I don't see a lot of value in what I'm doing. So you get you get disengaged quickly, and you're like, yeah. Eh. Let's do something else. Yeah, I've done this more than twice. Like, I don't <laughs> want to do this again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And and by the end, I was really dreading being there because it's the same thing over, over and over again. And mm. credit to my managers, you know, they, I'm sure, wasted a lot of effort managing me. <laughs> you were at KPMG for a few years before leaving to start your own company. Let's talk about your choice to leave. It, it feels like it would be pretty scary quitting the security of a, a salaried professional services role, right? What was your decision-making process like? Uh, what were you feeling, thinking as you were preparing to resign? Yeah, there was, there was a lot that went into that uh, decision. So first of all, you say it's risky, but in my perspective, a job is actually very risky because in a job, you're never really in control of your own destiny, whether it be economic conditions or a bad day. You know, if your boss had a bad day, your job is, you know, on the line. It could be your fault or it could be, you know, not your fault. You could lose your job, right? right? And back then I was making, you know, 45, 50K a year Canadian. It's like, you know, it's not really a lot of money. And, and I thought if I do an average job, I can probably make that back in a year, right? Mm-hmm. So the risk is actually not so great. Not, not, as, not as high as you think. The other thought that I had is I already got my CPA designation. Right. I can always go back and find a job. Right. Right. Let's just give so this... So that certification, like, kind of held as oh, a security yeah. blanket almost. Okay. Totally. Yeah. Uh, and I told my wife that, look, let's just, you know, gamble it for one year, see what happens. And lo and behold, we... Here we are, off. like, oh, <laughs> many years later. <laughs> many years later. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, to your point, it's, 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 it's not an easy jump because, I had, you know, I had this business idea and I told a lot of my friends about it. And I, and I said, hey, guys, like, let's go. Like, you know, I'm, I'm ready to go. Let's go start this thing together. And then they said, uh, no, it's too risky. Like, okay, that's fine. I'm going to go and start it myself anyway, right? So that's You and funny. I had that conversation. Yeah, yeah. exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 So you quit and, and you launched Legacy Advantage. Describe what Legacy was and, and what it meant to you. Curious particularly, too, where, where did the name come from? Yeah, I think the name echoes my mission statement again. Um, I didn't want it to be just another business. I didn't want it to be just another accounting business. Rather, I wanted to be have a meaningful impact where I am helping elevate my clients who are small business owners and also my team who are accountants. 
uh, and society and my peers as well, you know, educating my peers. That's one of the reasons why I got awarded the top 40 out of 40 is because I spent a lot of time actually educating and elevating my peers and contributing to the profession. Which is very much an, an abundance mentality, right? In yeah. terms of like, I, get, I need to protect my field and this, this space that I've created. You decided to just give your knowledge away. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Cool. And what, what, for listeners who don't know what Legacy was, what, what is that? Yeah, so Legacy Advantage was a cloud accounting firm. Basically, uh, we do the bookkeeping for um, clients all across Canada and sometimes in the States. And it's mostly all done in remote. And we only use QuickBooks Online as a software. And we had employees all over Canada uh, who, you know, got digital uh, source documents and input it into QuickBooks and yeah, and then we consulted with the clients. So cloud-based bookkeeping. Awesome. I'll, I'll actually probably dig into um, the fact that your employees are, are slash were remote um, in a bit. But mm. in your first year, you know, most entrepreneurs, I'd say, are pretty competent in their respective fields. But, but something that they always have to adapt to is learning the, the sales piece. How did you approach that in, you know, your first few months? What, what worked well? What didn't? Sales, huh? In university, I took on a couple jobs. I was one of those sleazy salespeople trying to sell you a credit card at Staples. Uh, and I was... Oh, you were that guy. I was that guy. I was that guy. <laughs> um, and I tried to sell, sell uh, people in Costco phone plans. Uh, so oh, really? I, yeah, I was one of the, those people. Um, <laughs> okay. It was a really, really great sales experience and really uh, brought me out of my shell. And so I wasn't necessarily concerned about selling. So that's a skill that I could uh, go back on. But when I first started started Legacy Advantage, um, I chose strategically to only provide bookkeeping services. It was a strategic decision. And keep in mind that uh, strategy is not about what to do, but it's more about what not to do. Focusing on a few things that you're really, really good at. Mm -hmm. So in my business plan i wanted to only focus on bookkeeping work because typical accountants don't want to do bookkeeping but they want to they, they want good bookkeeping done so that they can have a really smooth tax uh, year-end process mm-hmm. so then i actually went around to many local accountants and i said look you don't like doing bookkeeping but I appreciate good bookkeeping and i don't do taxes and i do bookkeeping so why don't we come together and partner up so i got a ton of referrals from accountants right away Right. You built this really good ecosystem. Exactly. I was a complement and not a co- competitor, mm-hmm. right? And so I actually grew from zero to, I think, $3,000 in monthly recurring revenue in the first month and then grew to 5000 and then doubled to 10000 a month in monthly recurring revenue in month three. So, you know, monthly, recur- monthly recurring revenue typically recurs every single month. So in a way to, you know, one way to look at it is, is that in three months, I build a hundred thousand dollar business, right? Because of that single-minded uh, strategy of focusing on one thing. Right, right. A single-minded focus of picking a niche. We'll be right back after a message from me. Moving to twenty sixteen, right? You've spent the past year growing legacy to over five hundred thousand dollars in revenue at that point, point. Mm-hmm. and your first daughter is born. Yeah. Um, I remember walking into the hospital and 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 passing Ellie to me. And I had, at that time, I had never held a baby before. Oh, yeah. Super awkward. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? 
But from your perspective, you enter this period of fatherhood for the first time uh, with a relatively young business. One, what were the first few months of fatherhood like? And two, what was the state of legacy like throughout that period? This is what I mean by building a life together. Like I could not have had that family without Anne being the primary caretaker. You know, I would not have had the ability to focus on legacy advantage without Anne being so great, without her family and my family being so supportive in allowing me to go out there and build a business. Mm -hmm. Because the business at that stage was still very young and it was an infant in its own way as well, right? So that partnership is, is very evident. Legacy Advantage could not have been what it was without Anne, right. my partner. Right. And yeah, it was definitely a crazy time. You know, I remember the night Elizabeth was born, I had a client who was really upset because we did something wrong. I was basically at the office until midnight getting some work done, and I was really tired. Went to 7 Eleven, got, you know, four cans of Red Bull, drove to the hospital. Anne was sleeping. Anyway, I, I, I drank some Red Bull. And then uh, I kept working, and then she went into labor. I downed another Red Bull, and then you know was with her when when Elizabeth born. And then as soon as the baby was taken away to get cleaned up and stuff, I just crashed on the on, on the couch. And then the next morning, I had a meeting at eight o'clock, so I woke up at seven thirty, said goodbye to the newborn and and my wife, and you know went to the meeting and, right. and then came back. So yeah, it was just a crazy time. And you, as a small business, you got to do what you got to do. It was fun. Did you, did, you feel like you're, for sure. did you feel like you were missing out? Not um, really. No? No, I mean, come on, like, babies don't know much, <laughs> right? Like, as long as my wife doesn't hold it against me, which I'm sure she does in a little yeah. bit, but no, she's super supportive, she understands, and, you know, the baby doesn't know if you're not there for the first week, you know? Did, um, were there growing pains in terms of, like, the first six months, let's say, of having Ellie, and, and then learning how to add this new factor of, feeding and yeah trying to sleep and yeah what, what did that look like yeah so again i credit all that to ann uh okay because you outsourced yeah <laughs> I, I relied on my partner because <laughs> um, elizabeth was mainly breastfed which means i couldn't have done anything anyway so when she was crying like ann had to take her yeah. right when basically ended all of the hard work so to speak right. uh, with the, with a kid as i continued to build the business it amazed me how Bob and Ann continued to build the business while building their family. I was struck by how meaningful and how critical their partnership was in making everything work. I mean, you know, I got 99 problems, but a baby or my own business ain't one. And speaking of problems, it seems like Legacy's story was such a great headline. Did they even have many hurdles to tackle? Spoiler alert, of course they did. Yeah, I think there are definitely... Uh hurdles that we had to overcome as I as our team grew. The first hurdle was actually hiring our first employee. As you can imagine, as a bookkeeping only business, it was actually hard to attract really qualified talent who was willing to do bookkeeping only. Because they would have been accountants. Yeah, typically the, the really high performing people, they would have wanted to work at a big accounting firm, get their CPA and stuff like that. And I had to really restructure what we did, rethink you know, our values, our composition model, to make it so different that we are almost the anti-big firm so that we attracted those who are anti-big firm, mm. which is exactly what we got. 
right? One of the things we implemented is a variable compensation model, which is very different from typical accounting firms. A variable compensation model? Yeah, a variable compensation model. So instead of paying someone a fixed salary of, let's say, 50, 60 grand a year, we pay them a low salary of 30,000 a year, and then they get anywhere from 10 to 20% of the revenues that they service. Got it. So the more effective and efficient they are at their job, the more money they make. Right. And did you clearly lay out what that looked like in terms of earning potential when you were walking them through yeah, onboarding? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. By the end, you know, if you can believe it, we were paying a bookkeeper, you know, between eighty to ninety thousand a year, like a bookkeeper, right? And that's unheard of anywhere in the industry. Right. But this person was bringing in like, you know, two hundred fifty thousand a year of revenue. Right. Uh, like, yeah, I do that math all day long. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But you know, I think the benefit of that is. Uh, we had a really uh, specific type of individual that applied with us and thrived with us. And those individuals are ambitious because they know that they can thrive under this this model, right? Accountants and bookkeepers are typically uh, risk averse. So when you say, oh, a variable, they, they typically run away. They right. run away to a safe job. So the ones that didn't. The, the ones that are really ambitious and believe mm-hmm. in themselves and know how to game the system came to us and you know thrived. Right? And those are our best performers as well. We continued to talk through all things talent hurdle related, but then I got to thinking, how did Bob not only tackle the talent problems, but any problem that was thrown at him? It sounds like as a business owner, you ran into a lot of things that you didn't know how to do initially. How do you approach problems that are... Oh man, that's, that's the fun part, man. If, yeah. you, if you know everything, there's no point in doing it. Mm-hmm. Right? If you know everything, then you're no longer an entrepreneur. You're just a executor. You right, know, uh, entrepreneur is, is risk taker. It's someone that's that goes into the unknown. Yeah, uh, I love it. Yeah, and uh, and figures it out. That, that's fun, man. Like you don't know what's going on. I think the key skill to entrepreneur is actually knowing to ask the question. You can't get stuck. You know, you have a problem, right? And you have two choices. You're you're either stuck, mm-hmm. or you ask the right questions and you lean in and you, and you solve it. And entrepreneurs are those that solve it or, yeah. or attempt to solve it, yeah. right? So asking, well, how can we be better? What's going on here? What's the underlying issue? And just tackling that. Awesome. This is a good segue into your perspective as a learner. You read 33 books 33. in 2019 yeah. as of yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> read at the, the bell. I don't read as much as I used to because I, I felt like I wasn't able to apply a lot of what I was going through. Um, but it seems like reading is a key activity that takes up a lot of your time. How do you approach reading in terms of why you pick up books in the first place, um, how you set aside the time to do so? Is it a wide range of topics? I actually started uh, 2019 with the goal of only reading 20, so like once every couple weeks. Such an overachiever. I know, but I just, it just <laughs> I finished 20 books in like, you know, August. I'm like, well, I'm just going to keep going. You know, there's no reason to stop now. And it was, it was such an incredible journey this year. I explored quite a few different genres. I mixed up a nonfiction with fiction, so that was a big piece because I get tired of nonfiction, right? And to your point, I can't apply everything I'm learning, and so I get discouraged by what I'm reading. So I pick up a fiction book. What do some of those fiction books look like this year? Oh, man, I can't remember. They're they're just like random, you know, mystery, murder, legal fiction. Yeah, Yeah, it's fun, fun. You know, it's it's fast-paced. You finish a book in like in a week, right? Okay. Those fiction books just allows you to imagine and be creative, I guess, you know, and just exploring a different side of the world that you might not normally be exposed to, like, you know, police work or legal or, you know, stuff like that. Uh, the other type that I've really explored is biographies and history. I've actually started to realize that as I read more and more nonfiction books, 
the lessons are all the same. So now these days, I don't. I actually don't pick up a book that says you know leadership principles or you know top ten things to do because they're all the Overplayed. same. Overplayed. They're all the same. Yeah. The principles are all the same. They just use the different examples. But what I find super interesting is digging into a person's life mm. and read about the circumstance, their reaction, how they've evolved as, as a human being. So one of the most memorable book, books I read this year. Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kieran Goodwin. She, first of all, wrote an amazing book called uh, Team of Rivals, which is a biography on Lincoln, which I loved. Um, good old Abe. Good old Abe. Uh, he was such an incredible leader. No ego, so mission-focused. And anyway, in the, in the book uh, Leadership in Turbulent Times, focus on four presidents, uh, Lincoln, the two Roosevelts, and Lyndon Johnson. And uh, yeah, it was really great to see their upbringing their reaction to life events their perseverance um and eventually their downfall some of their downfall um because you know some leaders when they're when they're so high achieving and they retire from the uh presidency they just go off the rail so sometimes that happens or you know a president may have really uh strong you know domestic focus but forget about foreign policy and the vietnam war happens Right, so it's really interesting to get a view into these people's lives. Another book that I really enjoyed uh, is called Disney Wars. Forgot the author's name, but it talks about basically the boredom politics of the happiest company in the world. It's not happy at all. In fact, it's so cutthroat. Yeah, it's insane. It's so much infighting. But right. all we see on the outside is happiness and beauty, right, and yeah. and music. Uh, you know, it talks about Michael Eisner, who is the previous CEO uh, to Bob Iger right now, and you know he was he was he did really amazing in transforming uh, Disney Animation to a certain level, but then ego got into his head, mm. got protective, territorial, uh, paranoid, all that stuff, and then he talked about you know the the acquisition of ABC. Again, the massive mergers are super interesting, mm. right? Uh, and then, and then I guess the follow up to that is Bob Iger's biography. Just as he's retiring, um, he tells basically his side of the story of Disney Wars events, which is again super interesting. And he is so opposite to Michael Eisner. Mm-hmm. Michael Eisner was like this Gen X leader, like top down, and Bob Iger is super collaborative. Uh, right. You know, Michael Eisner destroyed the relationship with Pixar and and Steve Jobs to the to the extent where they broke away, almost. Right. Right. And Bob Iger not only repaired that relationship, he got Steve to agree to a sale. Same story with Marvel. Same story with George Lucas. Like, George Lucas gave his legacy to be stewarded by Bob Iger and his team. That's crazy. Hey? That's amazing. Yeah. The, the impact that trust and transparency mm-hmm. can build versus, you know, how Michael Eisner left, yeah. uh, led, yeah. right? So. Are there leadership lessons? For sure. Mm. But I think it's those stories that really make you remember those lessons. Yeah. So I'm reading a lot more of, of those kind of things. Wow. Does that help? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it does. Um, how, do you, how do you set aside time to do all time. this? Time. Okay. Honestly, man, we spend so much stupid time on social media that I'm sure all of us can take 30 minutes to an hour to just either read a book or listen to a book. Is that what you do? That's what I do. Yeah. I, I think listen to like you know, 10 audiobooks this year okay out of the 33 yeah 10 of those yeah were, okay uh and granted a lot of it's fiction mm-hmm. right you just drive to work and, and listen to a book i struggle a lot with creating the time to read 
But this week, inspired by Bob while traveling for work, I got back to the hotel and after my workout, decided to just grab dinner and read a book while I waited. It was honestly some of the best time to myself in a while. So Bob has clearly read a lot over the past few years, but it was also over this period that he sold to Deloitte. Why did he sell? Also, why did he leave? The selling piece is a is very emotional, as you can imagine. Uh, Legacy Advantage was a was my baby and uh, lived it, with it for three and a half, four years. Still doing very successful, and we were, we're going to continue to be successful. But there are several reasons that I sold. So, first, uh, going back to my uh, mission statement is that I want to be make a really big impact, and I want to help others achieve success. So. My business, Legacy Advantage, was growing, but it wasn't growing at a pace where we required, let's say, five managers next year. And so there's a there's a cap to our growth, and there's a cap to um, our ability, my ability to advance my team. By selling, I bring my team to the large Deloitte environment, and more of them can be promoted to managers. And that's, that's exactly what happened. Within the first nine months, I think five of them got promoted to assistant manager, mm. an opportunity that would not have happened if I was on my own. Right. Second reason is, again, impact. I thought that by joining Deloitte, uh, this larger business, larger platform, more clients, I can have a much larger impact on the industry uh, than if I were just on my own. For example, I want to, you know, I want to have a location across Canada. I want to service businesses all across Canada. It would have been much harder if I was just on my own, whereas with Deloitte, the people, the resources, the brand, we could do that. Right. Uh, next is de-risking. I mean, you know, every every day that your business keeps running, you're risking everything. And so I thought, you know, three years, three and a half, year, half years, it was a good time for me to take some money off the table and, and, and cash in, so to speak, and lock in, lock in the value of the business. Mm-hmm, so that's, mm-hmm. again, another reason. Um, yeah, I think, I think those are the main ones. Why I left? So there was a lockup period. There was a, what do you call it, a retention clause mm-hmm. that had me stay for three years but i left after one so you can imagine i left a lot of money on the table that must have been expensive. a difficult <laughs> and expensive decision it was a very difficult uh, decision because that money was you know not insignificant it you know for some people it's 20 years of salary yeah 20 years of salary that's that's how much i gave up but it wasn't worth it for me here's the way i made that decision so if money was not on the table, if money was not in the equation, then I would definitely want to leave because I want to leave to do something else that's going to be way more impactful uh, on the world. Mm-hmm. And so if that's the case, then the only question is, is money. And for me, you know, my mission statement never included money. You know, we were in a, in a position where uh, we're, we're not, we're, we're doing fine. Like if we get this chunk of money or not, we're going to be fine. It won't make a big difference. It won't make a big on, difference. Yeah. Even if I get this big chunk of money, it's probably going to sit in the bank somewhere or you right. know, buy another house. Like it's, I'm not going to do much more impactful things with that money. Right. So, and my lifestyle is not going to change. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go buy like a Tesla or another house. And, right. You know, it's, it's like I, I wouldn't know what to do with that anyway. Mm-hmm. And so not only did I leave that much money on the table to join Traction Guest, I also took a bit of a pay cut as well. So it was a big financial sacrifice. But now I am extremely happy, super engaged, utilizing my creativity, adding value to my team, adding value to the business. Quick disclaimer here. I currently work for Deloitte. And I absolutely love my job. 
where I do feel motivated and creative and autonomous, but I felt like it was the right thing to include this because we're all entitled to have our POVs on what makes us happy at work. And they're all different. Anyway, back to Bob. We'll see. It could have been, you know, the worst decision of my life or it could have been the best decision of my life. But yeah. um, for now, it's been a really great move. First off, it's very cool that your principles are guiding your decisions. Um, I find that principles aren't talked about a lot apart from, you know, Ray Dalio comes out with his book, Principles, in this year or last year. And, mm. and, um, and everyone's like, oh, my gosh, like, this is so great. But, but principles have always kind of been there. They're just not talked about a lot in most social circles, right, uh, in terms of how we make decisions. What led from that was you reflecting a lot on how you've brought up the word impact a lot, and it's clear that impact is important to you. What do you mean by impact? What, am, what I mean by impact, um, I want the world to be better because of what I have contributed Ultimately, that's what I mean by impact. Okay. And, and, and to your point, it means different things to a lot of different people. You know, mm-hmm. some people are really happy with making a really big impact on a small number of people. Yeah. I want to make a, a medium-sized impact on a lot of people. Right. It takes different forms. You know, one of the reasons why I share my knowledge with uh, my peers uh, in my old job as an accountant is because I wanted to help them elevate, help them break through barriers. Now we're starting us uh, creating a startup that uh, Traction Guest, you know, it, it's a visitor management system that helps uh, large businesses comply with uh, GDPR, so privacy legislation, um, and it uh, helps with you know, security compliance with government authorities, and it also improves uh, the visitor experience for any guests. So it's 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 changing uh, experiences, changing compliance. So in a way, that's one way I would make an impact on on the world, um, and we'll, you know, we'll see where that takes me but um yeah making an impact impact it can it can mean different things to a lot of different people but to me it's about um volume as well as the impact of the impact (laughs) yeah just impacting all day uh for the longest time you you and i went to the same church Mm. right by ubc but we haven't really talked a lot about how faith has played into work Mm. in the perspective of impact and also relate in relation to working in this city, you know, Vancouver, I'd say is pretty spiritual. Like most people are pretty open to spirituality here where it's like, oh, I meditate, I, I do yoga, I, I self-reflect, right? How has faith played into your life uh, over the past decade? So faith uh, informs a lot of my decisions and my principles. You know, faith informs how I want my marriage to look, how I want to treat my kids, how I want my sex life to look. Um, how I want to treat my coworkers and um, how I want to show up in the world. Faith also shows up in how I make decisions. So because I believe that I'm a child of God, he's on my side, he has the best plan for me, and the best is yet to come, I don't make decisions from a place of fear. Mm. If I didn't have faith and I had a lot of fear, I would probably stay and keep all that money because that's a safety blanket. But... But I do have faith. I know that God's going to take care of me. So I just go for it, right? I'm bold because of what, uh, of, of, of that relationship. But yeah, like... No, this is good. Yeah. I, I, find it, I, I find it really fascinating because you're so analytical and logical. Mm. Um, how would you describe mm. that tension between rationality, let's say, of like fact 
right, versus the faith of believing in God. Right, okay, so so we'll, we'll touch on that. I also want to talk about um, experiencing God um, in my life. So I, I definitely had a difficult time coming to faith, or I should say believing in, in Christianity, believing in Jesus, because I wanted the facts. But the, the reality is that Christianity actually is facts-based. Uh, it's historical. And in the process of me digging into those facts, it actually helped me become a Christian. Mm. So they're not counterintuitive at all. Right. Um, so, yeah, yes, I call my faith faith, but it's backed up by a lot of evidence and fact as well. I can't name them all, but I remember like investigating it, mm. believing in, in who Jesus was and who Jesus is. Faith. Facts. Was that it? Well, I've personally been down this road before as well. It brought up a question. So how would you describe your relationship with God now? I would say it's lukewarm. You know, I definitely recognize his presence, uh, his hand in all of that I've accomplished and that I've done. I uh, wouldn't have had that opportunity without his blessing. In terms of a personal relationship, I think that's that still needs improvement. I guess I'm looking for opportunities that leverage my unique skill set, my God-given skill set to, to make a bigger impact. I haven't really found that opportunity, but hopefully it comes along. So what, what does that look like in terms of um, building the relationship? I think I build relationship while doing something along with someone. So, uh, so that's something to, to focus on the next decade. Mm. Speaking of the next decade, uh, you know, we're recording this on January 1st, 2020. What's your vision for 2040? 2040 is too far away, man. Uh, but uh, I think to answer that question, uh, take a step back to 2019 where I turned 30 and I actually took that pretty, took that pretty hard. Um, I had a lot of goals in my 20s and I feel like I've achieved them all, but I didn't really think about what my 30s uh, are, is going to look like. So, but it's starting to you know, shape up. Uh, you know, I think Traction Guest is going to be a really big part of my, my 30s. Um, I'm thinking about doing an MBA, so that, that might happen. Uh, and yeah, you know, in 2030s, I mean, in, in, in 2020s, uh, my, my girls are going to turn uh, teenagers. So that's going to be a big milestone. A lot of change in a family to come. 2040s, uh, you know, I guess continued mo- more of that. Um, but it, uh, it, it might be a decade where uh, kids start to move out of the house and it might be a decade for, for Anne. You know, she has a lot of uh, her own goals uh, that I encourage. Uh, and I encourage her to for her to think even bigger, uh, grander, and and uh, have even more impact, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, that might be finally an opportunity for her to focus on her goals and, and her mission uh, w- without having kids around all the time. So that's what 2040s might look like. Perfect. Any closing thoughts? Closing thoughts for the next decade. Uh, I would say... My, my default closing phrase is be bold. It's simple, it's easy to remember, and it's a really good philosophy to live by. Uh, right now I'm in a place where I'm just comfortable living day to day, but being really good steward of what I have on my plate and doing the best that I absolutely can. I don't necessarily have a lot of defined goals for the next decade, but um, doing the best with what you have is, is honestly a really great place to be and, and I'm comfortable with that. But 
that also means uh, you know being bold and taking opportunities uh, being bold and in uh, taking opportunities to learn and advance um, and suggest new ideas so yeah be bold don't be afraid it's gonna work out be bold like it hey thanks so much for for being on this show with me yeah thanks for allowing me to be here and impact your audience Ah, until next time keep swinging at those shrubs my conversation with bob really got me thinking how will we spend our days and what will it mean at the end of it all thanks so much for tuning in if you enjoyed this episode please share it with a friend and leave us a rating or review Uh, If you want to hear more of Millennials with Machetes, be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, keep swinging at those shrubs. JQ, out.